0: This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel, challenge the status quo. It's, it's never is-
1: easy to yeah. challenge the accepted leaders It's associated with release of an egg, and therefore, it's the controlling factor for pregnancy. So we don't want to be, you know, it's not good for the body to be pregnant all the time. That makes sense.
2: The reason progesterone is harder to make is the only way to make it is with ovulation. And ovulation can be hard to do because it requires everything else to be right.
0: When discussing the menstrual cycle, it seems the main focus is our periods. Today, we are here to challenge that concept and instead talk about why ovulation is actually the main event. I am honored to have two guests with us. Both of these are extremely popular on the podcast and well-respected in the community. The first is Dr. Lara Bryden, she is a naturopathic doctor and best-selling author of period repair manual and hormone repair manual both of which we have discussed in the podcast and she has more than 20 years experience in women's health and currently has consulting rooms in christchurch new zealand where she treats women with pcos pms endometriosis perimenopause and many other hormone and period related health problems. And I am joined by Dr. Jerry Lynn Pryor. She is a professor of endocrinology and metabolism at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. She has spent her career studying menstrual cycles and the effects of these cycles, changing estrogen and progesterone hormone levels on women's health. She is also the founder and scientific director of the Center for Menstrual Cycle and Ovulation Research, otherwise known as SEMCOR, and she has been in the women's health space since the 1970s. Again, I am so honored to bring these two guests to you, and it is such a great conversation. We're just going to dive right in, so take a listen. This is a true honor. Um, I feel somewhat silly to say, like, I feel like I'm almost fighting back tears because I'm so excited. I mean, think about it. Like, I started doing this podcast completely randomly, never set out to be a podcaster. And Dr. Pryor, I learned about you through Dr. Bryden's books. And um, Larry, you and I have had a couple of interviews together, and we've all spoken offline, and you are both leaders in the women's health space and bringing different thinking to the table. And to have all three of us here together, it's like, holy cow, Like this is a wow moment for me. So I am truly honored for you making time and for being on this podcast so often and for really thinking differently and and challenging. I think, Lara, just so you know, the last time Dr. Pryor and I spoke, I had just gotten an interesting podcast review and it was actually um, very nicely written. It could have been badgering, which some people do on social media. And it was saying, you know, I respect what Georgie's trying to do in interviewing all of these different experts, but it seems like sometimes there's a lot of pseudoscience. And, you know, my response to that is look, I am not here to say this is what women should or shouldn't do. My goal is to bring information. And because of the limited number of clinical trials. We're kind of left to try things that maybe don't have the clinical trials behind them. And I think a lot of what the guests bring to the table has a lot of logic and clinical experience. And I know it's hard to tell. I think right now they're talking about tanning testicles for men is the latest. You know, so it's like where oh have you seen this Dr. Pryor? Oh yeah. It's it the there is pseudoscience, but then it's like, so where does it end and begin? So I know we're in this really tough space. Um, with a lot of loud noises on social media. And today we're going to be thinking different and talking about ovulation as being the main event in a menstrual cycle. So I'm excited to see what the reviews of this discussion will be
2: georgie. it's about a it's about a paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the time when things get accused of being pseudoscience, I mean, not always, of course, there is real pseudoscience, but there's also the situation where someone like Professor Pryor making totally valid scientific observations and and speaking some truths and that is seen as outside of the consensus and therefore a little radical like why it should be radical to say that women need ovulatory cycles for health is crazy. Like I keep saying uh, future generations will look back and think, well, that was obvious. But at the time it had to be brave people like Gerilyn, you know, constantly speaking up. And as, as I've heard you say, Gerilyn, like just being willing to have a bit of pushback, which is part of your bravery in all this.
1: Uh, the latest is that people just don't engage. Mm-hmm. So I spoke yesterday evening to the reproductive endo infertility group presenting information about huge disturbances of ovulation during the pandemic and most of the people who've been attending because I've been attending this these rounds once a week for quite some time now most of the usuals didn't attend and there was only one sort of polite question from the head with whom I have a bit of a personal relationship. So it's it's duck and cover now. No. It It isn't. They're not willing to go like this because they know I have the science behind me. And what we're saying has huge implications for the practice of infertility treatment. Yeah. I mean, and that's a huge, very large yeah, industry. Absolutely. And not
0: even just fertility, it's women's health, which is why we wanted to talk about this. Because I think... A lot of people do focus on ovulation as a fertility thing. And what's really been yep. so interesting in the books that I've read and, and speaking to you both and others is the importance of ovulation beyond that. Quite honestly, the way I used to think about it before my own fertility journey was you have a period every X number of days. And to me, that was the menstrual cycle.
1: The period is is what matters. The flow is what matters. And that, in fact, is the message we get from from most of the experts. And basically what Laura and I are saying differently is the hormonal event in the menstrual cycle that matters is releasing an egg, making progesterone, and making it for a long enough time to counterbalance the continuous estrogen effects in the normal menstrual cycle. These two hormones are partners they they they're meant to work together and they have fundamentally different actions in different tissues they're meant to be coordinated and yet we can have perfectly regular menstrual cycles and not ovulate not release progesterone and we as women don't know and doctors no matter how smart don't know. The,
2: this is the key message. It's about progesterone, which is the forgotten hormone. I remember Jerilyn, I heard you say, explaining you're so right. What happened was scientists discovered estrogen first and thought, oh good, check, that's done. Women's hormones are covered now. We don't have to there's testosterone for men, there's estrogen for women. And then meanwhile, there's this whole other hormone which, as Gerilyn has written about many times, is equally important to progesterone. They really, they work together. And progesterone is just missing from the conversation. It's missing from women's bodies a lot of the time. And yet people don't know that it's missing because no one's talking about it or looking for it, apart from Gerilyn, obviously. And the reason it's missing and no one knows it's missing is because of this, you know, lack of focus on ovulation. So if if you don't track ovulation or pay attention to it you're not going to realize that you're having what are actually an ovulatory cycles which are cycles when you don't ovulate i feel like the term ovulatory and anovulatory can come into the conversation i don't th- i feel like they're simple enough for everyday women to understand to use those words to journalists to use those words yep
1: the the problem is that gynecology has defined anovulation as long cycles confusing it with lack of release of an egg in other words they've made it seem like only obviously peculiar long unpredictable cycles are the ones in which we don't release an egg a- a- and that's not true well, you
2: were the first, your your study on that was like 15 or 20 years ago wasn't it Lynn where you found that at about up to like a third of cycles are anovulatory, invisible anovulatory, so regular, like normal length cycles, but not ovulating, which does speak to the fact that it's okay to have the occasional anovulatory cycle. I mean, that is a normal part of human physiology. So that the problem is not that you have to ovulate every every single time. It's more just understanding if you are ovulating and if you're healthy you should be ovulating most of the time not just to be fertile but to make the progesterone you need for bone health and breast health and
1: and and even more subtle because the cyst it's as part of a system, and it is extremely subtle, is that you can release an egg, you can ovulate, and not make a long enough duration of progesterone for implantation of a fertilized egg or for counterbalancing estrogen, so the short luteal phase, if an ovulation isn't acceptable, short luteal phase is even less acceptable to many gynecologists.
2: Can we just talk about how easy it is to know if you're ovulating using temperatures? So this is not rocket science. Like you you don't need to have a blood test. You can. I mean, your doctor can assess you with a blood test, but also there's ways women can be empowered to track this themselves. So you have a quantitative temperature tracking method that's scientifically validated, correct?
1: Yes, that's right. And it's been freely available Ever since the website was formed in two thousand three,
2: yeah. When we when we ovulate and then make progesterone, our body temperature goes up by about zero point three degrees Celsius, and it stays up. It doesn't just. A lot of my readers think, oh, it just spikes up. They have to look for this one little spike, and that no, it it's a consistent no, rise. No, no. It's a
1: plateau. It's a
2: plateau, exactly, and it stays high. In a ro- I love your phrasing of a robust luteal phase. So if you have managed to make a good amount of progesterone and have a healthy robust ovulation especially in a you know woman of reproductive age like health you know younger age that should last at minimum what 11 days sort of 10 or 11 days 12 10, days yeah
1: 10 by the quantitative one yeah but there's a delay from the time of egg release until the temperature actually goes up it takes a bit of time
0: a question for you lara since I know you're working directly with so many patients who you're teaching, and I know Dr. Pryor, you're more working with um, on the research end of it. So maybe Dr. Bryden, you have a, a different perspective. Is when it comes to how people are tracking, are they open to the paper method, or are people really much more into the using the apps? I'll be honest. I think some
2: women are still open to paper. There's certainly the whole in the fertility awareness method, you know, sphere, which is a very vibrant community they're very passionate still a lot of them about paper tracking i think you can use an app to assist you just with the record keeping but you still need to be able to you know potentially interpret that there are algorithms now to help you interpret i don't know what do you think geraldine i mean do you feel are there any of the apps that you are a fan of
1: most of the ones are not accurate and in fact sometimes the programs in the app predict your cycle rather than reflect so i guess
0: you know one thing i want to make sure that we address sooner rather than later so people get that this is really relevant to every woman and not just those trying to get pregnant is can we dive a bit more into why ovulation is so important to our overall health like we talked about the implications of bone health et cetera. but can we just dive a bit more into that and then we can go into a little bit more around the nuances of ovulation as the main event but but i think through this discussion we'll start making that point
1: let me let me um just tell you how fascinating it is to start looking at how estradiol or estrogen and progesterone act differently in different tissues for example most women who've done any basal temperature charting will know that often there's a little dip before the temperature actually goes up. It turns out that dip is from high estrogen. Estrogen lowers the temperature, whereas we just talked about progesterone raises it. Or sleep. We know that progesterone improves deep sleep, decreases sleep interruption, Uh, makes it you fall asleep more easily, but it doesn't affect rapid eye movement sleep, only the slow wave sleep. What's interesting is that estrogen works on rapid eye movement sleep and primarily if, for example, you're working a night shift and trying to sleep in the daytime, higher estrogen will help you to do that. Yeah, we have a, you know, our
2: A lifetime of hormone exposure is ultimately going to affect things like long-term risk of breast cancer. That's just one, you know, one example.
1: People mix up natural progesterone, which our bodies make, with the synthetic ones. So all the time women say, I'm on a progesterone only pill. It's a synthetic. And the synthetics only have to do two things. And they happen to be Gynecologic, reproductive things. <laughs> they have to change the lining of the uterus to a non-proliferative secretory, and they have to preserve a pregnancy that's already established. To be a progestin, that's all they have to do. We have no idea how they act in the brain, in the breast, in the bones, in unless we've you know actually studied it. If you push straight into your breast, back toward your spine. If it's tender at all, it means your estrogen is higher than normal or not counterbalanced by progesterone.
0: Now, is that important for any phase of life? Because we know with perimenopause, you've got all the hormone changes.
2: Part of what we're talking about is the way that progesterone, real progesterone that you make with a robust, healthy ovulation or that for example, maybe you take during perimenopause to counterbalance all that high estrogen, progesterone possibly has a risk reduction effect on breast cancer. So Lynn wrote an amazing blog post about this. This is an example where the science is not, you know, 100% conclusive, but there's several lines of evidence. Would you say that's that's true? Yeah. And so... A good amount of progesterone through a lifetime from ovulatory cycles, and you know also pregnancy, because pre- in pregnancy we make a like huge amount of progesterone, and then potentially, potentially if needed, you know maybe taking progesterone, real progesterone dr- throughout the the risky perimenopause years, could, in theory, reduce the risk of breast cancer. Is that would you say that's accurate to say?
1: Yeah. Yes, yes. You know, just because the oncologists don't believe it doesn't mean it's not likely true. It's important to realize if if you have breast cancer and it's progesterone receptor positive, first of all, you never get progesterone receptor positive without estrogen receptor positive also. If it's progesterone receptor positive, then you have a better prognosis also.
2: Would it be fair to say in that case, progesterone potentially has a down regulating effect on the cancer cell at that point in theory yeah yeah, yeah.
1: in some way yes, yes. but but yeah. that's the principle is that estrogen is important but it's powerful and it needs controlling <laughs> it needs to be reined in if you will a hyperactive kid <laughs> kind of thing and and um so that's progesterone's, one of progesterone's jobs. The other is to help the tissue become more specific, more differentiated, to do whatever that tissue was made to do.
0: Got it. Yeah.
1: So progesterone does those two things, and therefore you need a large amount of it to do its job in balance with estrogen. So we make estrogen easily. That's something I say too. Estrogen is
2: easy to make. Progesterone is hard to make. And we actually ironically need a much bigger amount of progesterone than we do estrogen. So Gerilyn's talked about this. I talk about this a little bit in my book. Like it's always portrayed as the two hormones are equal in the diagram of the menstrual cycle, but they're not. Actually, progesterone, if you adjust for... Uh, units and also just rise from baseline, correct? Then actually, you make a, we're supposed to make a huge amount of progesterone compared to estrogen.
1: Es- estrogen has a 220% peak above its baseline. Progesterone's peak is 1,400% above its baseline. Why
0: is it so hard then for us to make progesterone?
1: Because it is something carefully controlled by, by our, our system it makes sense. It requires energy. We have to eat 300 kilocalories more a day when our progesterone is in luteal phase range, which is expensive if you think in terms of hunter-gatherers or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And secondly, it's the controlling factor. It's associated with release of an egg. And therefore, it's the controlling factor for pregnancy. So we don't want to be you know, it's not good for the body to be pregnant all the okay. time. That makes sense. Right?
2: The reason progesterone is harder to make is the only way to make it is with ovulation. And ovulation can be hard to do because it requires everything else to be right. So, you know, in in my first book, I talk about the period is a monthly report card. In, I'm really talking about how your ability to ovulate monthly is a sign that you everything is healthy, that you're eating enough, that you're not too stressed, that you're, you, know, you have no other health condition going on, like a you know, thyroid or whatever it is. Any, anything not quite right with the body can potentially suppress ovulation. So that's why, I would say in a nutshell, that's why progesterone is harder to make.
1: Each menstrual cycle is made by a different follicle. Yes. We're born with millions of them. The fact that we have consistent cycles is just incredible because it's a different set of cells. It's not the gland that's making or not the ovaries. It's each individual cycle. Each cycle is a miracle, really. I love that each cycle
2: is a follicle. It's true. And just to tie it all the way through without getting too technical, the when the follicle releases the egg and then turns into the corpus luteum, which is the gland that makes progesterone, It is a miraculous, incredible event. It grows from like the size of a small cell to, I think I've got this right, like almost four centimeters, well, two to four centimeters in just a couple of days. The scientists who looked at this said, this is amazing. We've never, there's no other tissue in the body that does this. It just creates this gland out of nowhere, not out of nowhere, but out of the follicle. And then it does this amazing job of making this huge amount of progesterone. It's it is when you think about it. It's really, it's really astonishing. And progesterone. We should be so grateful for every cycle of progesterone that we make because it's so precious. And then, of course, I mean, in the background to all this is the the fact that we hormonal birth control shuts it all down. So progesterone is so precious, and then we so casually just shut it down. And. You know what, Georgie, just tying in another thing that progesterone does for us, Before I want to stay on this topic for a minute, because this is another research study that Professor Pryor has done, is about bone health in young women. So is that true? You did a study showing that all types of the pill, oral contraceptives, how would you phrase it? Impair bone density in young women or in teenagers? Yeah.
1: Teenagers are gaining their peak, their strongest hip bone density during the you know, say 14 to 19 years of age. And the birth control pill prevents that, or a lot of it. So, I mean, and we, that's when in life women are most likely to be prescribed the pill. It's really not good. And it took us years to get the meta-analysis that showed that published. I mean, it was rejected, 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 rejected. All the major medical journals rejected it without review, by the way. Huh. And it, and the
2: mechanism there, in part, would you say, is it is the way that the pill suppresses progesterone. I mean, I, I'm sure there's different things going on, but because the pill does provide an, an estrogen, not the same as our own estradiol, but on the pill, there's no progesterone. And Professor Pryor is the scientist who has been pointing out for decades that, Progesterone is also beneficial for bones. It's not just that estrogen is beneficial for bones, but progesterone is.
1: Again, it's another tissue. Estrogen's job is to slow bone loss, and progesterone's job is to increase bone formation. So we need to get rid of the old bone. But we don't want to, uh, you know, helter skelter throw out the baby with the bathwater. So you need the progesterone to fill in where the old bone has been taken away.
2: That's an example of why young women need ovulation, need progesterone, even years before they're ready to make a baby. They are trying to, they're they're trying to build bones and have a healthy heart, cardiovascular system, and all the things that it, they need both hormones to do.
0: if I I were to kind of lay this out, like across the lifespan of a woman. So in adolescence, um, it's it's about bone health, general health, preparing for reproductive health. And when I say reproductive health, in this specific way, I'm thinking specifically fertility. Um, Because I know a lot of times we talk about reproductive health as the reproductive years. And the health during that time is a predictor also for how someone experiences perimenopause and the risk factors for breast cancer etc is that a correct like what do we need to edit there as far as the whole lifespan
1: basically the 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 whole system is learning how to ovulate during the During the early adolescence.
2: Yeah, did you say it takes 12 years? I heard you say that in an interview one time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Volman's data. Volman was a Swiss physician who had basal body temperature data and used a quantitative method to assess it. And in women of different ages in general, it took... 12 years from their first period until they were most consistently ovulating normally. And you know what
2: that means? I mean, just think about it. If you put a 13-year-old on the pill and shut down the entire system, she's not maturing her system, which could, in theory, mean that when she comes off the pill at 35, ready to have a baby, her ovulatory cycles will not be as robust and healthy And regular as they would have been if she'd been permitted to mature like normally during those that decade or so.
0: When I was struggling with my fertility for four years, I would talk to folks about stress and birth control. And doctors are so emphatic to talk about one, stress not having an impact on fertility. And two, it's been studied in so many ways that birth control doesn't have an impact. And so, again, with the start of our conversation of the review of the podcast being pseudoscience, how, how do we address this?
1: Unfortunately, uh, along with it, a form of estrogen being the first of, of the gonadal steroids discovered or chemically isolated, um, gynecology as a, as a discipline sort of fell in love with estrogen. And so not only is there not much room for loving any other hormone, they needed something to blame. And so progesterone gets blamed for many of the things that are in fact related to estrogen without progesterone. So, so there's a systemic, long-lasting, pharmaceutical-supported bias in the whole understanding of women's health toward estrogen as positive and toward progesterone as either not relevant or as negative. I mean, the, the saying that I I saw in a newspaper from a rural town in BC years ago stuck with me. Estrogen's what makes a girl a girl, you know, which is equating hormones with gender identity, which is so stupid, but at any rate, So if estrogens, what makes a girl a girl, which, you know, I already said I don't think, then estrogen with progesterone makes a girl a healthy woman.
0: Oh, I love that.
2: And Georgie, in answer to your question of this sort of, you know, the proposal that years on hormonal birth control could later have an impact on fertility, in my understanding, the research has not really been done. I mean, obviously, there's been a few studies, examples of women who can just stop the pill and become pregnant with no problems at all, just bounce straight into ovulatory cycles. But here's how I would see that. And obviously, Professor Pryor can chime in. But like, it depends on the question you're asking, right? So if you if you have a population of women who matured their menstrual cycle in their teenage years, they've maybe already had a baby, they then go on and take the pill for a few years and then stop, I think their fertility is probably fine. So I think that's where some of the studies were. They looked at that particular situation. You can't extend those findings to the scenario where you take a 12 or 11-year-old girl and put her on a drug that shuts down the maturation of her ov- ov- you know, of her ovulatory cycles, and the communication between her ovaries and the brain, and then you know, leave her on that for twenty years, and then just assume she's going to be fine in her thirties because of this other research that showed, you know, women who take it for a few years when they're already mature. Don't have a problem. Would you say that's accurate, Geraldine? Like this hasn't. No one has studied yes. what happens to an eleven-year-old girl who takes the pill for twenty years and then tries to get pregnant. That research has not happened.
1: No, not on a population level. No, not on a random sample level.
0: When clinical trials are designed, they're designed for a primary endpoint and a certain number of secondary endpoints, and so you're answering a very specific. Question: My question has always been, but what was the endpoint? And you know, what exactly was the specific question? What I find is when someone will read something, a generalization gets made, and then you have the game of um, telephone where it gets expanded and expanded into something. And it's like, you know, what was the exact trial? What was the exact primary endpoint? You know, what was the age of the women studied? Because that's what we really need to get the message out there so that we can have these gaps filled with clinical trials um, that, that need funding.
1: Well, for a start, birth control pills were not allowed for non-married women <laughs> when they first came out in the sixties. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So there's no data for know, those. And, yeah, teen- and the, yeah. and the average age, the average age is starting was 2021. 20, the average age it's starting now is 16, 17. And we have, we have Canadian multicenter osteoporosis study data documenting that um, shift in the age at first starting the pill. And we haven't yet really understood the implications. But, but here's another thing, and that is that any clinical trial requires that premenopausal women who could potentially become pregnant use some form of reliable contraception, and that usually means the pill. So so all of our clinical trials are biased by the chemistry of the pill.
0: I never thought about it that way.
1: <laughs> In COVID, the women had Birth, had to have on, be on birth control be, before they could be in that trial, which is why when the, the vaccinations were rolling out in the general population of younger women, all of a sudden we were having all these women saying, I'm having early bleeding. I can't predict or I'm having heavy bleeding. Nobody ever thought to ask what's the effect of, of the vaccination on menstrual cycles
2: you know just speaking about scientific studies it's very common I mean when I do sometimes look at the methodology of studies that scientists don't even differentiate between women on the pill and women having ovulatory cycles because we have this shortcut narrative that pill bleeds pill withdrawal bleeds are periods they're like well everyone's having periods so we'll just lump them all together and study them all together it's like that makes no sense at all because the physiology is so different on the pill obviously compared to an ovulatory cycle right. so there's a basic lack of literacy around female physiology in science that is quite astonishing actually like it's it's and i'm not even a scientist so like the fact that you know i i can see it i'm like what are you know i just don't even understand how it could have gone on, gone on this long.
1: Another one is that the earliest pill studies, the Puerto Rican studies, they didn't have a placebo group. Right. Most, And we haven't yet got very much information in a placebo-controlled trial of how the pill affects right. women, how it affects their experiences. I mean, and in fact, when when I was challenging the idea of extended birth control, and, and saying, you know, show me the evidence that that's not risky. And I said, well, we need placebo controlled trials. And, and literally a prominent journal laughed at me, both the reviewer and the editor said, don't be wow. silly.
0: In perimenopause, we know that estrogen is significantly fluctuating and then the progesterone is declining. And we know that that's normal. But we also talked about the balance of estrogen and progesterone. And I know we had um, some discussions around taking supplementation. So if there's this natural thing that happens to our body, what exactly do we need to do to mitigate the risk of things like bone loss and breast cancer? Because on the one hand, it's natural. But on the other hand, we're saying progesterone is important. So help us understand that part.
1: If you are... Waking with night sweats more than twice a week. If you're having enough trouble sleeping, which is another big one in perimenopause, that you are not able to function in your daily life, then progesterone is a very appropriate therapy for you. And if you're still having regular periods, then you can take it cyclically because those hot flushes, night sweats, tend to be clustered around flow. Later, where cycles are very irregular, you can take progesterone daily. We have randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial evidence for what I just said, but I have spent four and a half years and 15 rejections trying to get that published.
2: Progesterone is amazing. Progesterone can be so helpful during perimenopause. And actually, Georgie, I'm going to take a stab at, you know, the kind of theoretical, why should we need it if it's a natural process? I mean, I'm just going to say from my lens as an evolutionary biologist. So my science background is actually that I worked and um, published a paper as an evolutionary biologist. So I do see a lot of things through that lens. And I'm curious what Gerilyn thinks of this, but our modern world is quite different than how we potentially would evolved. And certainly modern day forager people for example such as the hadza they they would have just I, I mean just i'm giving you a scenario like let's say in a more traditional setting you have your final baby at 42 43 then you breastfeed for 3 or 4 years and then you just kind of cruise into menopause potentially you don't necessarily go through like in a traditional setting we wouldn't have necessarily gone through these this decade or so in our 40s of untethered, uncontrolled estrogen just bouncing up to three times higher than it ever was before. This is arguably sort of a modern challenge. I think and it could, there could be other factors, you know, environmental toxins and other things affecting this. But of course, it is normal to shift to more anovulatory cycles and eventually stop, you know, having cycles at all. That's normal. But I think this real situation of very high unopposed estrogen and without the progesterone to back that up may be somewhat of a modern phenomenon. So that would be my justification for why we potentially therapeutically need to come in with some progesterone. For some women, not all women require it, but some women do. And 30 or 40 years ago when they didn't have access to progesterone – because progesterone can also lighten flow – Those crazy heavy periods of menopause used to mean women had their uteruses taken out. So when I started practicing 25 years ago, I would say – I mean, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say – 70, 80% 70, 80% of my patients in their late 40s had their uterus taken out. Like that was just the normal response. And Gerilyn has a beautiful blog post, which I give out. I'm constantly sending to doctors. It's a, it's for practitioners. It's called Managing Menorrhagia Without Surgery. That's your, it's an explanation, a protocol for using real progesterone, oral micronized progesterone to lighten flow and avoid hysterectomy.
1: And I used to hear that Well, women didn't live to be menopausal in the, you know, old days, right? Well, that's wrong. wrong. Women have lived to be old for a long time. It's just that the average age of life expectancy wasn't into the menopause years when life was much harder, when when we had fewer resources and poorer nutrition and everything. I think it's probably only 20 or 30% of women who have a really rough time in perimenopause. And we're still learning why it is. I had a terrible time, and I think it's because the enzyme that breaks down estrogen, just from genetics in my situation, Mm -hmm. is slow. It doesn't allow it to break down quickly. So I had the high estrogens in spades because it was, you know, hanging around.
0: Back to anovulatory, because one thing we didn't get to is how is it that a woman could have a typical cycle, meaning number of days? Because I know a lot of times we think and and for a long time I did too. I thought anovulatory cycles are mostly when you're like that PCOS patient who has the 35-day or 37-day cycle or longer. Can you tell us, I guess, biologically, how someone can have like why it would appear that? why someone wouldn't be ovulating, but the cycle's still within that normal time frame?
1: Uh, Obviously, I don't have daily hormone data or anything, but I think the estrogen, the amount of estrogen stimulating the lining of the uterus, at some point, the uterine, the endometrial tissue gets too thick and juicy, and it just sheds. And that sort of point happens in anovulatory cycles around 28 days or the usual cycle length. And it is really very hard in those people who say, take the pill and do without periods. That doesn't happen. Usually what happens is that they get spotting. They get little, you know, I mean, what's worse than having a regular period is having an irregular one, not knowing when you're going to bleed. So the idea that you have to ovulate before you can have a menstruation comes from the notion that progesterone, or the unfertilized egg, brings down the flow. Well, that's just mythology.
2: Under the influence of estrogen alone and no progesterone, which is not good for your general health you can have semi-regular bleeding because the uterine lining just thickens, thickens, thickens. And then at a certain point, just lets go. And that can happen somewhat regularly. And that can mask the fact that you're not ovulating and you're not getting all the other benefits of progesterone. And you know, it's not good for the uterine lining either, actually, to not have progesterone, but it's not good for the breasts or the brain or the bones or all the things.
0: Okay. So then if we were to go through a or an, I should say ideal state of a woman's life from puberty to the day they hit menopause.
1: 10% of women of normal age at menopause, 45 to 55 or so, will have a further period yeah. after oh. that. Yeah. And if they, ha- if they had menopause before age 45, then it's 20%. Interesting. Because once you are declared menopausal, then any bleeding is rightly a worrisome thing about endometrial cancer. But remember, endometrial cancer is asymptomatic. The woman had no clue it was coming. These rogue periods that happen for the 10 or the 20 percent Always, women will say, oh, yeah, I was bloated. Oh, I had sore breasts. Oh, yeah, I felt PMS-y. And that's a really important thing because for them, that's a normal nother period. They don't have to have an endometrial biopsy. Right. They don't have to have, you know, investigations, ultrasounds, right. hysteroscopies, and all that stuff.
2: They just had a period. Now,
1: yeah. That's right. They had a rogue period that was for them expected because there was a follicle still remaining in their ovary that was responsive to the higher LH and FSH and it made its way <laughs> and you know, it made enough estrogen that that they need that they so had. But then a who period.
0: does need to get tested for endometrial cancer?
1: Anyone for whom the bleeding came out of the blue. Right. I had no oh, clue like it no was symptoms. coming. No symptoms of a
0: period. Real quick, let's end with ideal. Like, what is a, if we had the ideal way of how a woman would go from adolescence to menopause, what would that look like if we were to summarize?
1: For each woman adapting, becoming resilient in her own environment so in other words all of us have stressors i mean i don't think i ovulated till i was in my Mm mid-20s till i'd finished medical school i mean i was just stressed i was working and i was penny pinching and i you know but that doesn't mean even though you know my own research would say that puts me at risk our bodies are incredible
0: uh what about you dr bryden what would you say well
2: yeah I guess there, as I would agree with Professor Pryor, there's no like one life history one way it has to go, but I would say ideally, as many years of ovulatory natural cycling as is possible, and that's again a reflection of health, like Professor Pryor gave the example if you're super stressed and busy like you're gonna go through some time potentially when you're not ovulating not not to panic about that, not to overstate it, but like you you want to try to see a healthy ovulation as a sign of health which it is which acog has said it is you know 4 or 5 years ago and then of course there's the question of do you have pregnancies that should just be entirely a woman's decision of does she want a pregnancy like you know does she want children that's doesn't really come into this i would say i mean i personally did not have biological children but i would still say from a You know, health perspective, it's, I think pregnancies are quite good for you. I think, you know, I think pregnancies gives you a nice big dose of progesterone and it probably does some recalibration of the metabolic system. So pregnancies potentially are quite healthy. And then interestingly, the breastfeeding and postpartum phase can also be quite healthy, even though it's low hormone. I just want to talk about that because I saw Professor Pryor, you sent an email to someone in response to that. I had another thought about that. So, there's a hormone called oxytocin, which is actually, obviously, we make a lot of it during breastfeeding. And there's all this research now into how beneficial oxytocin is for bone health and cardiovascular health. And I think that's very interesting. So I think, even though in theory, breastfeeding is a low hormone state, you know, should be kind of a risk, but it actually seems to be somewhat protective. And I think it's oxytocin, maybe it's this, this baseline of progesterone you talked about in your email. So, in answer to your question, what is the perfect life history of a reproductive, you know, it's, it's ovulatory cycling, it's pregnancies, if you want them. Okay. And it's, you know, navigating perimenopause in a safe way where you keep your uterus and don't end up on hormonal birth control. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, it's living as healthily as you can, yeah. within the life circumstance you have. I yeah. mean, We've just done a a study that shows that during COVID, even if people's cycles remain regular, a a huge number are not ovulating normally. And I'm expecting that those women will recover and be the same, you know, as a cohort that didn't go through a, a pandemic because our body is made to be resilient. If we give it half a chance, and part of that resilience is, you know, a feeling of of doing something important in the world, of being loved, of being respected, of having time in nature, you know, it, it, it's a it's a picture that's that's really holistic, that allows ovulation to occur, and ovulation itself is a a way, an, a regular ovulatory cycle most of our lives is a way of protecting our bones, our cardiovascular system, protecting against many reproductive cancers. We, we've not even scratched the surface of what, how important ovulation is yet.